Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 284. It's titled, We Are All Vulnerable. Last week, I spent several days backpacking with my son and daughter-in-law in Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument in southern Arizona, about 10 miles from the U.S.-Mexico border. That particular area of Arizona is covered by the Ajo Station of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Their website points out the area of responsibility encompasses over 52 miles along the international border, nearly 8,800 square miles of operational area. They write, to effect an illegal entry within the Ajo area of responsibility, illegal aliens are often committing to several days in the remote desert with little to offer in relief. Rough, rocky terrain flat desert covered in cactus and brush, and numerous mountainous regions are predominant in the area and make travel, even in accessible areas, difficult. We hiked seven and a half miles up a rocky and sandy wash. We each brought eight liters of water. As we walked, there were a few empty containers water jugs that were in the shape of Clorox bleach bottles, but they were jet black. About a mile from where we camped, we found the discarded items of someone who apparently had been apprehended, to use the phrase that Border Patrol uses. There was a pair of Levi jeans, socks, a camouflage vest with provisions, binoculars, packages of tuna in Spanish, a toothbrush, and a tube of Colgate Triple Action Toothpaste with the lid undone. It looked as if this individual had been caught while brushing his teeth. The border in that area is 81 miles to Gila Bend, Arizona, 115 miles to the Metro Phoenix area. I can't imagine anyone risking that long of walk. There's no way you could carry enough water to get there. In Ajo, Arizona, there is a store called Three Nations Market and Swap Meet. And on the side of the brick building, there's a mural. It's a picture of butterflies, monarch butterflies, and men with butterfly wings. And it says, Migration for all living creatures is a move from scarcity toward plenty. From despair toward hope. Humans have their own migratory impulse based on the same fundamental desire coded within all living things. Survival. People move when they feel financially vulnerable. 
where they feel like they don't have any choice. And it's always been that way. Andrew Jackson Downing, he was a leading home architect in the early 19th century, was born in 1815 in New York State. He wrote, We must look for a counterpoise to the greater tendency toward constant change and the restless spirit of emigration, which form part of our national character. There were a lot of people that tried to enter the U.S. illegally last year. Here's some statistics from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection and the Pew Research Center. Total apprehensions on the southwest border for the fiscal year ending September 30th, 2019, was 977,000, up 88% from the prior year. Now, that's down from 1.6 million apprehensions back in the year 2000. Non-Mexicans accounted for 80% of the apprehensions, and that was the fourth consecutive year in which non-Mexicans outnumbered Mexicans. In the year 2000, 98% of those that were caught were Mexicans. Most this past year and this year come from what are known as the Northern Triangle Nations, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. 71% of all apprehensions were from those three countries, but combined, their population is only 33 million, about one-fourth of Mexico's 129 million of population. There's another big change from the year 2000. Back then, it was mostly single men, Mexicans seeking work. Last year, there were 474,000 apprehensions from family units. Fathers, mothers, children, even unaccompanied children, ages 17 and younger, 76,000 unaccompanied minors. 56% of all apprehensions were family units. Now, many of those were designated as inadmissibles, and that's the U.S. Customs and Border Protection's terms for those that just cross the border and turn themselves in to seek asylum. And why are families coming from El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala? They're fleeing violence. El Salvador has the highest homicide rate in the world. Honduras is fifth. Guatemala is 16th. Nicole Norea in Vox writes that each country has rampant government corruption and high rates of violence against women and LGBTQ individuals and remain hotspots for international criminal gang activity. The U.S. State Department has issued travel warnings for U.S. citizens in all four countries. She continues, migrants have the right to pursue asylum in the U.S. if they have credible fear of persecution in their home countries on account of their race, religion, nationality, political opinions, or membership in a particular social group, such as a tribe or ethnic group. Here's an example, as reported by the Associated Press. Adolfo Cardenas traveled with his 14-year-old son from Honduras. It took them nine days to get to the U.S.-Mexican border, riding buses, and they paid a smuggler $6,000 to ensure passage through highway checkpoints. They walked about 10 minutes into Arizona this past June, surrendered to border agents, 
But instead of being released with paperwork to appear in immigration court in Dallas, that's where Cardenas hoped to live. He had a cousin there. They were bused more than an hour to the Mexican border city of Mexicali. He said it was a surprise. I never imagined this would happen. They're in a migrant shelter awaiting their court appearance. Anthony Porvaznik, he's the chief of border patrol for the Yuma sector, said their whole goal was to be released into the United States. And once that was taken off the shelf for them, and they couldn't be released into the United States anymore, then that really diminished the amount of traffic that comes through here. Because the asylum seekers are having to remain in Mexico. Cardenas worked construction in Honduras in the capital, and he says he feels unsafe in Mexico and that it was impossible to escape gangs in Honduras. They are in every corner, he said. Emma Florian of Guatemala crossed the border illegally with her 16 and 13-year-old sons. She said the dream was to reach the United States. She was hoping to settle with relatives in Maryland. She's not sure what she'll do if denied asylum. Only 14% of Guatemalan asylum seekers were granted asylum for the 12-month period ending September 30th, 2019. 18% of Salvadorans, 13% of Hondurans, and 11% for Mexicans. Stephen Miller, he's a senior advisor on policy to the Trump administration, wrote in a memo, My mantra has persistently been presenting aliens with multiple unsolvable dilemmas to impact their calculus for choosing to make the arduous journey to begin with. To not come at all, because it's so difficult to get in. The U.S. has 44 million foreign-born immigrants, the highest of any country in the world. 49% are citizens and 25% are Mexicans. Then China is 6%, India 6%, Philippines 5%, El Salvador 3%. Immigrants account for about 14% of the U.S. population. That's triple what it was in 1970 at 4.7%. It's never really gotten over 16%, but back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, it was around 14%. Most immigrants, 77%, are in the country legally, while about a quarter 10.5 million are unauthorized immigrants. Now, that number is down. Back in 2007, it was 12.2 million unauthorized immigrants. Of the foreign-born immigrants in the U.S., 52% speak English very well. 61% are married. Of those that are 25 or older, 50% have a high school or less education, compared to 39% for the U.S. population as a whole. And the U.S. grants a green card, the right to stay, which is what asylum seekers seek after a year. If they're approved, they can get a green card or granted permanent resident status. And about a million per year are granted that in the U.S. As I was lying there, resting in my tent in the Arizona desert, I kept thinking of whoever it was that caught and abandoned all this stuff, about a mile from me. I thought, he's not that different from me. There have been times growing up when we were just as financially vulnerable. Certainly weren't fleeing violence, but I remember my mother telling me 
numerous times that we would be on the street if we weren't getting help from others. Food. If we didn't have a house that we had bought for $17,000 in the early 70s. The banker was kind enough to not foreclose when my mom missed a payment for a month or two. I think about my children, or most individuals when they're young. You don't have much money, much savings. If things really took a turn for the worse for whatever reason, unemployment, a health issue, you rely on it, your safety net of friends and family. We learned in the episode about happiness that that's the key. Having someone to rely on. But if you don't have anyone, you're extremely vulnerable. August 7th, 2019, there were immigration raids at seven chicken plants in central Mississippi. 680 Hispanic workers were arrested. That opened up jobs. Juan Grant said, I figured there should be some jobs. And he got one. Now, he called the raids cruel and mean. And at times, he felt like I stole it, the job. And I really don't like what I stole. But he was able to get $11 an hour. Was thinking about buying a used Honda. Getting serious with his girlfriend. Now he had more money. But it was a 75-mile drive from his trailer house. And within a few months, he was let go. But others took those jobs and are still there. Jamal, who works at one of the processing plants, says, if you're somewhere you ain't supposed to be, they're going to come get you. Shalanda Davis has worked at one of the plants for 17 years. She said, I'm glad that I see my people going to work. But the way they came at the Hispanic race, they act like they're killing somebody. Still, they were only working, you know. One of the individuals was caught, a Guatemalan mother named Eva, wears an electronic ankle monitor that she calls la grieta, the shackle. She's not sure what she's going to do. She's going to fight to try to stay in the U.S. with her children, 13 and 9, who are American citizens. There's a study called The Effects of Immigration on the United States Economy, put out by Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. They write, a popular view is that immigrants are taking jobs from American citizens. However, although immigrants increase the supply of labor, they also spend their wages on homes, food, TVs, and other goods and services and expand domestic economic demand. This increased demand in turn generates more jobs to build those homes, make and sell food, and transport TVs. That's how the economy works. More people equals more demand leads to more output, which is how we measure economic growth. Many of those individuals don't speak English very well and take manual jobs, which puts pressure, as we saw in the chicken plant, for those that one of those jobs might not be able to get them. And it does put some downward pressure on wages for those starter jobs. But much of the wage pressure goes to those that are immigrants. But it also allows those that have the language skills to move into better jobs because the overall economy is growing. In terms of immigrants with college degrees, there is little or no wage pressure due to immigrants on U.S. native-born 
individuals, but on those that are foreign-born. It does allow the overall economy to grow. Now, that doesn't mean borders should be completely open. And I'm not sure what the solution is, but I just, I think about these are people leaving for a reason. And we all kind of have that desire to make things better. And sometimes maybe we're not that far away of feeling compelled to move somewhere else where things just seem so bad that we, we want to leave. Around New Year's, I drove to Oakland, California, the East Bay area, to visit my son. I was shocked by the homeless camps, campers, people living in cars, tents, in many places, just kind of on the side of the streets or in parking lots. Lalani Farha, a UN representative, when she visited the California encampment, compared it to the slums of Pakistan, Brazil, and Mexico. She said no access to toilets or showers and a constant fear of being cleaned off the streets. Let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Each year, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development does a count on a single night of the homeless. This past January 2019, they reported that 568,000 people were experiencing homelessness that night. Two-thirds, 63%, stayed in sheltered locations, emergency shelters or transitional housing programs. 37% were in unsheltered locations on the street or in abandoned buildings. Overall homelessness levels increased 3% from 2018 to 2019, after being essentially flat between 2016 and 2018. 
the number of people staying in unsheltered locations increased by 9%. California has more than half of all unsheltered homeless people, 53% or 108,000, and nine times as many unsheltered homeless as Florida does, even though California's population is only twice that of Florida. Here are the states with the highest rate of homelessness per 10,000 people. The national average is 17 persons per 10,000. New York is 46, Hawaii 45, California 38, Oregon 38, Washington 29, District of Columbia 94. Now, I thought, well, warm places will have more homeless, but that's not necessarily true. Mississippi has only four homeless per 10,000, Louisiana 6, Alabama 7. The HUD report points out that family and veteran homelessness has declined due to what is known as the housing first approach. This started in the 1990s with the idea of providing houses first and then help those that are homeless deal with addiction problems, mental illness, instead of having them solve the problem first before given access to shelter. And that approach seems to be working. But the problem of homelessness is overwhelming. Many of the homeless are recovering from a natural disaster, a fire in their house, a hurricane, a medical illness, and not having insurance. In other words, they were financially vulnerable, and it led to homelessness. The other big driver of homelessness is just the cost of housing. The Economist reports that a 10% increase in housing cost prompts an 8% jump in homelessness. And in cities where restrictions were lifted to allow more residential construction, such as Tokyo, they've seen their unsheltered homeless population fall by 80% in the last 20 years because there was just more housing opportunity. Now, in California, the Bay Area, there's clearly some geographic constraints. But some countries are, are again, building housing for the homeless. Singapore, Finland. But when I think about the homeless and those that are fleeing violence and seeking asylum, you realize that they're not that different from us. Now, clearly, we want to make financial choices to kind of have savings to protect ourselves. but Are we that different? After publishing the report in the New York Times, they asked individuals who had been homeless, like, what can we do to help out? And Jill Cohen, reporter, said, everyone essentially shared the same advice. Treat people you come across with dignity and respect. Don't avoid eye contact, but do avoid making assumptions. Assumptions, well, they deserve it because they're homeless. Miranda Janismir, who is homeless, says, if you see someone suffering from homelessness, consider just giving them some clean water to drink. I used to be so thirsty, and all anyone ever had was soda or alcohol. Another suggestion by Isis Newman is to know your area's resources and pass them along. She said, the most helpful thing by far that anyone gave me was knowledge. When I first became homeless in San Francisco, the resources most helpful to me were where to shower, where soup kitchens were, where to get medical care, and how to get food stamps. 
finding out what emotional support groups are available, where to get financial and job assistance, how to get free college classes, how to secure a mailing address, and so much more. We can also volunteer at some of these organizations, such as the local food pantry. But we can contribute to the organizations that are helping refugees and the homeless. We can encourage our governments to provide more opportunities for housing, including zoning changes, and be willing to not fall for not-in-my-backyard approach to living, but recognize that we need more housing. We need more low-income housing so people can afford it. These are not easy questions to answer, and they're very much interconnected. To conclude, I got an email from Juse. He lives in Finland, and he writes, Finland has done great economically for decades, and a good economy for sure creates a good foundation for an overall welfare. But in my opinion, the ultimate key to the Finnish or Nordic happiness, which is often missed in the news, public writing, and discussion, is the true equality and intergenerational social mobility that we have in our society. No matter what your socioeconomic background is, the society, especially the education system, gives you equal possibilities to succeed in your life. I can give you a couple of concrete examples. And he mentions he's a lawyer by training, has a decent international working career. His spouse is a business owner, which means they're among the top 5% of earning households in the country. Next to them lives a couple that are medical doctors, but on the same street, they said there's a single mom working in a bakery, as well as a couple where one of them works the counter at a municipal swimming hall and another's a part-time bartender. And he says, there's no drastic difference in our lifestyles, one could say. I have a bit bigger and fancier house, two cars, and probably a slightly bigger investment portfolio, and definitely a lot bigger tax burden. But generally, the social classes don't play any bigger role in our everyday life. We buy from the same grocery store, our kids go to the same kindergarten, and do the same classes in the same schools. And if they do well there, they have the same chances to go to high school and from there, whatever university in the country. All for free funded by taxes. A free warm lunch is served to every pupil every day up to high school. Everyone studies at least two foreign languages, English, Swedish, in school. Most do the voluntary third one, German, French, Spanish. They don't have any private schools or elite schools. And he gives the example of their prime minister, Santa Marin, who grew up in a poor family. He called it a rainbow family with two moms. Her biological father was sick and alcoholic and couldn't support her economically when she was young. While in school, she worked the counter in a grocery store to supplement her student aid because she didn't want to get a student loan. Now she's the prime minister. Now he points out that Nordic societies are far from being perfect. And I'm not saying the U.S. needs to turn into, or other countries, into Finland. But one of the challenges is finding the right balance. How much of a social safety net should there be? How much should government be involved in helping to solve the housing crisis? How open should borders be to take in refugees, asylum seekers? These are problems that have been around for decades, if not centuries. 
to find that balance. In the meantime, we have to recognize we're not that much different from them. And perhaps as financially vulnerable as them. And we need to do our part to make sure that we don't end up in that situation. Help our friends and family members that perhaps are close to that situation and contribute to the private and public social service organizations through our time and means that are there to help those that are suffering through very hard times. That's episode 284. You can get the links to the articles that I've referenced for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide, and I'll email those links to you each and every Wednesday when I do an episode, along with an essay I do on money, investing, and the economy, and you can sign up for that insider's guide at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.